before jumping into uh, what you can expect from today, I do want to start off by acknowledging that we are broadcasting out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And so we'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and to acknowledge their continued connections to this beautiful lands, skies and waterways. So we're on to today's guest. Um, we're going to be speaking with Barkindji multimedia artist and broadcaster Raymond Zader. Raymond Zeta is a visual artist working primarily with photography, printmaking, video and digital design. And he is one of six Barkindji artists featured in the upcoming exhibition at Bunjil Place Gallery, which is called Naraja, meaning together, us group, all in it together, which presents, represents these six Barkindji artists coming together under the direction of co-curators Nikki and Zena Cumston to offer a dynamic portal into Barkindji country and connection. Raymond, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this exhibition in person, but it's nice to be able to have a chat with you in the lead up to it. I wanted to start off by talking to you a bit about um, your artistic practice. I was wondering if you would be uh, willing to share with us a bit about the development of your, your journey into art and whether there was a defining moment for you where this all began. Um, yep, so I would have to say the... The defining moment was the, the Telstra Art Awards in 2012. So I put a piece in called Racebook, and I won the Works on Paper category for that. So that was, that was you know, kind of the absolute boost for my confidence to say, OK, yes, maybe you do have something to say and maybe people are interested in what you do. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of... That was the impetus for continuing, I guess, with my art practice. And, and I'd always been creating things and but never actually showing stuff to people. I was always, you know, at home on my computer as a child, you know, twelve years old and and ongoing from there. But I guess, yeah, putting putting something into the, the Telstra Awards and, and getting recognition from that was then the kind of that gave me the confidence to get out there a bit more, I guess. That's fascinating. Um I feel like it's one of the first times that I've heard where your your journey sort of beginning is at a point where you'd, you'd been sort of dabbling in this for seemingly like a lot of your life, but really it was that moment of the Telstra Awards that made you feel, okay, I see myself as an artist. Yeah, and it's it's something that I could recommend to absolutely any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist out there as well is put, you know, have, have a look at the Telstra Awards, put some work into it. If you don't get accepted in there, nobody knows you did it. If you do get shortlisted and you're in it, well, then, you know, you, you can see that people get to see your work and, and you'll get that recognition for your work there as well. So it, it's absolutely worth it. And if you don't get in one year, like, absolutely keep trying because there are, there are so many artists who've gone on to win who don't, you know, who aren't lucky enough to get it on their first time either. Well, that's excellent advice as well, especially as it's something where you can just give it a shot, um, but it's, it's, I guess not as too vulnerable as feeling like you're putting yourself out there, I guess, on like a centre stage and um, having to deal with that immediate, uh, I guess, like feedback. Um, so you mentioned the race book. I have seen this piece online, but I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about what this piece was and where it came from. Uh, yeah, so it came from, um, I, was on, I was on Facebook and a, a friend of mine, asked uh, like did a post and say can you please report this group and I clicked through to the group and it was um well one of them was called Abri <clears throat> excuse me Aboriginal Spongebob uh, and it was it was a homeless person who was wrapped up in a yellow mattress and so it had become this oh. huge kind of parody thing and just invited people to spew all the racist comments they possibly could and 
Um, there was another group called um, Giving Your Wife a Sniff of Your Petrol because you're a top Noongar. And, and, but both of these groups were just filled with the most horrible racist stuff we could see. And rather than just report it, um, because what happens is you report it, the group gets taken down. People think, fantastic, look how offensive we were. Facebook took our group down. And then 24 hours later, they've got a new group set up and they're trying to do it again. So... So instead of doing that, well, before I reported it, I copied and pasted all of the comments um, from those two pages, uh, and I knew that I wanted to kind of do something with that and, and highlight the kind of stuff that, that is going on and the kinds of things that people in Australia um, are thinking and saying about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Oh, that's so heartbreaking, so, yeah. Yeah, so what I did was I took all of that text, and, and when you see this work from across the room, it looks like the Facebook logo, white letters on a blue background. But as you get closer to it, you see that the letters are actually made up of all of the racist comments. So you kind of, you look across the room and read Facebook and you think, oh, haha, that's funny. But as you get closer and you read more, the, the piece becomes much darker as you, you start seeing some of the comments that people are making in there. Oh, that's horrible. I... Yeah, I, I, especially when it comes to social media and especially Facebook, there is like the most incompetent uh, moderation of things like this. So I can, I'm, I'm glad that I guess you're able to, uh, I guess, react in a way and to present that in a way that wasn't, um, I guess, just playing into their game of that joy of being removed and just restarting again. Wow, what yeah, a piece. Uh, with, with, with some of the commenting that was on there, there was one young Aboriginal woman who responded to you know, one of the commenters, and gave the most beautiful, long, eloquent comment explaining why the person was incorrect in, in their assumptions. And then that person comes back with, you know, just a three-word most viable racist comment towards them. Like, they're, not interest, no, they're not interested in, in learning or, or hearing or growing. It's, it's just it's a big game for them. Absolutely. No, I, def I definitely know where you're coming from. So then I guess returning back to your, your art style, I, I've described you as a multimedia uh, artist. Would you uh, be willing to explain to us a bit about what mediums you work within? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really depends, I guess, on um, what story it is I want to tell and the context that it's going to be shown in. Um, so sometimes it might be, uh, simply a, a series of photographs. Other times it could be um, video or prints. Uh, and then for the Nautiche exhibition, this is actually a, a series of um, etched acrylic panels. So it's something completely different again, and which is nice. It's nice to kind of you know dabble and, and try out new things. It's also pretty stressful because you you don't know if something's going to um, always work out the way you're expecting it to. So, um, yeah, I'm busting to get to Melbourne next week and see it installed and see if it looks the way I'm hoping it does. Oh, that's so exciting. So is it, um, I guess, your, your experience with different mediums, is it, are you just being driven by a curiosity to experiment with different styles? Or have you found a style where, you know, you tend to, uh, you tend to probably preference it over the others? Uh, no, definitely different styles. I think sometimes... Or I don't think sometimes, I know sometimes I wish that I had kind of, you know, a thing or a style. It had certainly um, narrowed down the scope of where, where my thoughts might be going when I'm trying to create something. Mm. Um, I guess it's a bit like someone saying, you know, write a story. And it's like, well, <laughs> it could be on anything. And, and so that, that's how I kind of feel when it comes to my art practice as well. It's like, oh, but what am I going to, what medium am I going to use? And how am I going to tell this? And, 
Whereas if I kind of had a particular technique or style, then I could kind of hone it down to, okay, how would that work in this context? But it's, yeah, I enjoy the, I guess, the creative process though of finding, finding what medium it is that will work for the story I want to tell. Well, that's very interesting. And do you find that you've had like, uh, I guess, like creative influences or inspirations that have drawn you to those styles? Or is it something where you're not really guided by the previous work of others, but more just that curiosity of your, yourself? Yeah, not, not so much by work of others, though. Um, yeah, I, there, was, there was one moment where I was in Canberra for a, a community radio conference and we had some time free in the morning. So I went to the National Gallery and I was walking through there with our program manager and then we came across uh, some work from Vernon Arkey, the if, uh, if I Was White. And so it's these, it's these panels that and artworks that are made up purely from text. And I saw that and I just thought, wow, <laughs> I could be an artist because I've always loved um, language and words and text, but I'd never thought of those as being um, you know, something that could become an art piece. And mm. so, yeah, I guess that, that opened my eyes then to, to uh, the possibility that, oh, maybe one day I could, you know, could produce some art because I can't, um, well, I say I can't draw, I have to go on some things, but... Um, you know, I wouldn't ever kind of paint something, I don't think, and put that out there for people to see. Well, maybe just, yeah, well, I guess we'll have to see in, um, in future, maybe if you find yourself <laughs> heading in that direction. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, so for those tuning in, we're uh, speaking with Bark and G multimedia artist Raymond Zeta. Um, I was wondering if you, we, I guess like now turning back um, our attention to the fact that you are an Aboriginal man. And of course, in this exhibition that's upcoming, this is a, uh, a really important, um, I guess, if you want to say like theme of that exhibition, this idea of country and belonging. I was wondering in your previous works, how have you felt that your culture has influenced them? Um, I guess it's it's one of those things where um, I guess your your culture inf- influences your entire outlook on life, mm-hmm. and and so you know growing up growing up in a country town, being Aboriginal, but having fairer skin, um, also being same sex attracted, so you kind of you're you're in you're this minority within a minority, and you you can see that there are plenty of places where you don't fit. Um, so that kind of influences your your view of the world, and you start deconstructing things and and looking and saying, well, you know, why is this happening, or or why is this set up in in this way? So I, so for me, just I guess having that that outlook on the world from from a very young age um, influences my practice. Then in that I'm still taking that step back and holding up a mirror to society and kind of saying. You know, this is what's happening. It's, it's it's not so much that I'm saying you are this and you are this. It's more that I say this is happening. Oh, that's very interesting, and especially um, so. I guess now I will turn our attention as well to the Naracha exhibition, because I know that idea of Naracha is talking about together and this sense of belonging. So, uh, what you've said about the way that your experiences and your, I guess your, um, the way culture manifests is through. You, just you, generally just your life and those life experiences and the way that that comes through in your art. How has this idea of belonging or naracha, um, I guess, how, is, how, how have you connected with this theme for this exhibition or how do you feel about this word and this term? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really powerful 
term and a powerful thing. And it's um, one of the things that we did during... So we had three, three trips back to country, a week, a week long each. And on our first trip back, um, so Zena, Nikki and um, Adrienne Simmons were all cousins. The, the four of us are cousins. Mm. And one of the things we did, Adrienne had an A4 sheet with some names, names on there of some of our, our relatives, our ancestors. And so the thing we did on that first weekend then was kind of just fleshed out, well, you know, who do we know? I downloaded some, some genealogy software onto my laptop and we just started, you know, listing off names. Um, we went to then Menindi and Kinchiga National Park and two of our other cousins came along and joined us and filled in some of the gaps in those names. So between the six of us, we listed off 364 relatives <laughs> and across, I think, eight generations. Wow. So, so, even, so that's, that sense of belonging. So even though I'd say, you know, growing up, I, I could see that there were plenty of places in society where I didn't fit and didn't belong. Um, on That's on... The, so those 364 names are on the Zeta side of the family. But then on the Dadla side of the family, we've done a similar process, and I think that's about 500 names that we've listed. So, so I've always had that sense of belonging to something, like belonging to our family, and, and it's, a, it's a huge family, I guess. And so, so that's always been the strength in, well, yes, I don't, you know, I don't sit here and I don't sit there, but I will always fit in my family, and that's nothing that anybody can ever change. Wow, that's that's incredible and so beautiful, especially that um, I guess those pre-experiences uh, of all you cousins connecting before uh, creating this really exciting exhibition. So I know that with with Nadija that there are around fifty curated works. So most of the works, or if not all are works that are being prepared specifically for this exhibition. So I guess yeah. with having that experience of connecting with your family and really embracing this idea of belonging, do you feel that that experience travelling together and those conversations have influenced the pieces that you've created for the exhibition? Yes. So I've, so I've created one one piece for for this exhibition. It's a, it's a series of 12, 12 panels and it's... Um, it's acknowledging my ancestors from the last 10 generations, my direct bloodline. So my parents, their parents, their parents for 10 generations. And so that um, has involved hand drawing 2,046 people onto, onto these 12 panels. Wow. Um, they're, they're, they're quite simple shapes. You know, there's no, there's no arms. There are no hands or feet. So I've managed to avoid drawing 40,000 fingers and toes. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Which now another look at was a very good thing. Um, yeah, but it's, um, it, it's, uh, so it's, paying, it's paying respect to, to each of those ancestors, but it's also, um, I guess, sharing with others that, that this is something that all of us have. You don't have to have come from um, a big family with you know, 300 cousins on this side, 500 on the other side. Every one of us, whether we're a, a single child or we've got 10 siblings and our parents were single children or had 10 siblings. We all, over the past 10 generations, have 2,046 direct blood relatives who contributed to our DNA. So, so it's just, I guess, placing people into that kind of context of you belong as well to, to, to your family and to something much bigger than you and we are connected in so many more ways than, than you might think. That's so beautiful. What a sorry. What a lovely thought. Um, and I'm. It's. I, I mean, I've already been really excited for this exhibition, but this is uh, really amplified the way I feel about it. To hear the context and your perspective approaching it. 
uh, this is just sounds absolutely stunning. So for listeners at home, I'm going to um, uh, give a bit of an explanation as to what this Nadacha exhibition is. So Nadacha, meaning together, us group, all in it together, is a fresh and vibrant exhibition that brings together six Barkindji artists, Nikki Cumston, Zena Cumston, David Doyle, Kent Morris, Adrian Simmons, and of course, Raymond Zeta, who we're speaking to now. Um, and uh, how lovely to know that four out of the six are cousins <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> the beautiful moments that have helped influence the art pieces that we will see. So they are exploring and illuminating the artist's homelands and ancestral connection through newly commissioned works featuring more than 50 works of art by these artists. Um, and so the exhibition is going to be uh, starting, launching, opening, there we go, opening at Bunjil Place Gallery in Nari Warren from 14th of May, which is actually Mother's Day next weekend, all the way to the 3rd of September before it's going to be touring nationally. So I uh, definitely encourage, uh, if you can, go out for a nice drive out southeast suburbs and um, see something uh, very special, quite beautiful, that's been put together by a very hardworking team. Uh, Raymond, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I wish you all the best in the upcoming exhibition and I look forward to seeing it myself. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting there and seeing it too. <laughs> Wonderful. Safe trip over here. <laughs> So now I want to take a second to chat about some nerdy stuff, okay? So let's remember my background is an astrophysics graduate and I like astronomy and space. And there are some really exciting things that have been happening recently and will continue to happen over the next few years. And so right now feels like the absolute best time to be talking about two very cool bits of celestial phenomena that have happened in our skies recently and will continue to do so in the nearby future. So one, I want to talk about the Aurora Australis, which is the Southern Lights. And then I want to talk about the solar eclipse, uh, which is all very exciting, very nerdy. So bear with me for a bit of time um, and get excited for the things that you'll be able to see in our skies. So starting off, I wanted to talk a bit about the Aurora Australis. If you've been paying any attention to the news recently, I know there's been... (laughs) Over this, especially over this year, you know, every few weeks it feels like there's a new media release about the, the southern lights being seen over New South Wales for the first time in a long time. So it is exciting. We are seeing quite a lot of aurora activity at the moment. So for some background on what aurora are, because, you know, I'm taking this moment to educate everyone on um, some of these things I think are really cool, but I think aren't you know, commonly taught about in school. And so hopefully this is some interesting insight to you for why we are having so much aurora at the moment. But essentially we get these aurora when charged material is ejected from the sun in the form of solar winds. So if you've heard of solar winds before, it is essentially um, charged particles that are flying over to earth from the sun. Now, these Particles interact with our magnetic field. So the Earth has a magnetic field, super handy. It's great. Sure, it, you know, we have compasses and they work and that's awesome. But one of the best things about Earth's magnetic field is it actually deflects a lot of the harmful radiation from the sun. So having our beautiful molten core and a working uh, magnetic field has done wonders for life on Earth. And so another thing that this magnetic field does is it actually guides these charged particles from the sun, this solar wind, towards the north and south poles. And so when these particles arrive there, they actually collide with the gases in our atmosphere, with the two one, main ones being nitrogen and oxygen, the things that make up most of the air that we breathe. And so when these charged particles c- collide or interact with the gases in our atmosphere, they excite them and we end up seeing this emitting of light. So that's how we get it. It's literally particles from the sun touching our air and giving us a beautiful light display. And so... The impact of whether it's oxygen or nitrogen interacting with the solar wind or with those charged particles will actually uh, 
dictate what colour we see in the sky. And so quite often when people are seeing beautiful footage of auroras from either the northern lights, because, you know, there's a lot of countries that get to see them sort of directly in the northern hemisphere, or if it's, you know, um, someone who's been lucky enough to see them down in the southern hemisphere going a bit closer to the uh, Antarctica, you're going to see light that's quite green. And so this is because we have like a lot of oxygen um, that tends to be in like the lower altitude. So if you're standing underneath an aurora, it's probably going to look very green. However, when it interacts with nitrogen, which we tend to have in beta abundance in higher altitudes, we end up actually getting this blue and deep red colours of the aurora australis. And so when you're seeing it from Tasmania, or especially at the moment, seeing it from mainland Australia, what we're seeing is a lot of that high altitude aurora, very high up in the sky. So it tends to look red to us. So if you've seen any of those photos around and you're wondering why it might look different from the videos you tend to see from Norway, for example, it's because we're seeing it from mainland Australia. We're seeing aurora that's quite high up in the atmosphere and it's red. And so indigenous astronomers over a very like millennia of observations have seen this beautiful effect coming up over mainland Australia and seeing this beautiful red colour and making similar associations with these being essentially bushfires that are raging up in the skies above us. Uh, if anyone is interested in reading further about it, I did write a an article um, about the aurora um, with a professor, associate professor Dwayne Harmaker as well. So if you were to search Crystal Napoli and aurora, you can read more in more detail. But to give some examples, uh, the Gunditjmara traditions of coastal Western Victoria, they talk about the aurora. They call them pueboe, which means ashes. So once again, with that sort of fire theme. Well, then there's a really interesting Gunai Kurnai tradition, which is from uh, a country over Gippsland in Eastern Victoria. And for them, once again, aurora are perceived as bushfires raging above us. But it has a very specific story originating saying that this bushfire is actually the manifestation of the anger shown by a powerful sky ancestor who's called Mungan Noor. Um, and that this is essentially a consequence of a taboo being broken in their society. And so that the sky ancestor has brought this fire as a reminder of what the consequences would be for committing these uh, breaks in taboo. So... They have uh, these aurora have a significance in Aboriginal astronomy for dating back millennia. Uh, what's very interesting to note, though, as well, is that the sun actually operates on what we call an eleven-year solar cycle, which is a whole reason why we're starting to see aurora up in places that we don't usually, and why this might be something that you haven't seen, you know, any time in the last decade or so. It's because this 11-year solar cycle is when the sun reaches peaks in activity or when it's a bit more mild. And so what's happening is in about two years' time, we're actually reaching the solar maximum. And so this is when there's heaps of solar activity, so expecting sunspots, um, coronal mass ejections of a lot of material. Um, and what it means is a lot more material essentially is reaching Earth. And so we're seeing a lot more aurora, and it's also ending up reaching, I guess, like further down, <laughs> depending on what hemisphere you're in from the poles heading towards closer to like the equator, not reaching the equator, but essentially heading upwards more. So we, instead of needing to travel or fly close to Antarctica or being very lucky in Tasmania to see it, uh, people in, you know, my country town in North Victoria are able to take photos of the aurora at the moment, which is just so wonderful. And the thing is this 11 year solar cycle, it's actually two years away from the peak. So this is something that's ramping up at the moment, but it's going to continue to ramp up for at least the next two years. And then also we're going to still see that activity for the few years on the other side of that aurora, um, of that solar peak or of this aurora activity. 
And what's so cool to me is that this 11-year solar cycle, once again, is also something that's been recognised by Aboriginal astronomers. So in Dadawal uh, traditions, and sorry, I'm a bit breathless, but it's COVID-related, uh, which is great. Um, sorry, don't worry, it's not <laughs> me talking all too fast, but um, I just felt like I need to point that out. But um, in Dadawal pra- uh, traditions, the appearance of the aurora, which is called Tangara, actually indicates the start of an 11-year weather cycle relative to that country. And so it's really fascinating the way that this solar cycle and also weather patterns have been um, understood for quite a long time in that country. To be able to see that there is an 11-year 11-year solar cycle just by observation is fascinating to me, especially by naked eye fascination, um, naked eye observation. I find that incredible. So if you're enjoying the aurora, um, I would pay attention to any astronomers. Um, there's definitely resources online to help monitor aurora activity. Uh, and if you're a keen photographer, uh, even up in New South Wales, wherever you, you may be listening to this uh, this show or this podcast, um, you have an opportunity to actually to be able to see it from your town, which is incredible. So it's going really well at the moment. Over the next two years, it's going to continue to ramp up too, but the sun is going to continue to put on a bit of a show for us. And for me, I'm super excited by that, um, especially to see the beautiful red aurora. Now, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is the solar eclipse. So... Very recently, April 20th, I think, um, you might have heard or seen in the news that there was a partial solar eclipse over Melbourne. Uh, so the full for a full total solar eclipse, it was, um, it was only a very tiny, tiny sliver of Western Australia, like the smallest little jutting out of land that had the total solar eclipse pass over it. Um, and that was around on Dalanji country in Exmouth, um, up pretty far north. But... Uh, 10% in, in um, but there was 10% in Melbourne and 0, 0% or no, or less than 10% in Sydney. Um, so they uh, sort of missed out. Well, everyone else got a bit of a, yeah, <laughs> a, a bit of a better view, which also sort of balances out though, because in five years time, Sydney are going to have a total solar eclipse. And the reason I'm talking about this now is because solar eclipses are so rare, right? Uh, they are described in many Aboriginal astronomical traditions. Um, one that I think I've sh- shared on the show before would be a Gomorrah tradition, um, talking about our uh, Moon Man Baloo and Sun Woman Yi and uh, their sort of eternal dance across the skies. And, you know, once in a while, um, the Moon Man Baloo deciding to cover the Sun Woman in an embrace, which is a description for the total solar eclipse. And I talk about this because it's fascinating because total solar eclipses can take up to 400 years in between to occur in a region. So they are super rare and very cool. Um, we have approximately two happen a year across the Earth, but quite often then it's not over land. Uh, and sometimes you can have more, apparently. Um, was it like once every 2,000 years or something, we can have five total solar eclipses in a year, but that's not happening anytime soon. But yeah, these are really rare events. And it's essentially, uh, for anyone who... I guess it's unfamiliar. It's when you have the moon pass over the sun in totality. So completely blocking out the light from the sun. And what's fascinating to me is just how I feel like the uh, the probability of experiencing a total solar eclipse, it's not just rare as for being now, but also it's just something that's so unlikely to have even happened in our solar system. And so I wanted to talk a bit about that to get everyone a little bit hyped for the fact that Australia is going to be experiencing a couple of these events over the next decade, which is very close in astronomer terms, okay? (laughs) On the scale of 400 years, five years is super close. So essentially our solar system, we all orbit around the sun, so the Earth, all the planets, and also the moon, 
we all orbit generally in the same plane. So we're all in that same sort of disc. No one's doing any sort of like quirky spins around the top of the sun or anything. We're all generally just going in the same sort of motion. Pretty stable. Even the moon. The moon is somewhat similar in the same sort of plane as the sun as it orbits around the earth. But it's not perfect. Actually, this, the moon's orbit relative to the sun has a five degree tilt. So the chances of the moon passing in front of the sun and being at the right part of its orbit where it's at that zero degrees, where it's at that exact same alignment with the sun is quite rare. And that plays into why it takes around 400 years to have this sort of luck thing um, uh, time up well or line up well to be able to see it. But also what blows my mind the most is just how unusual our moon is. And this is something I assume probably hasn't been taught in school for most people. It's something I learned in my studies. But our moon is very unusual, right? Its size, it's quite a large moon compared to the size of Earth. That is not a normal thing for us to find in let, not only our solar system, but just in the, in the galaxy or the universe. Usually, for such a small planet like Earth, you might get a moon because you've probably, you know, maybe you've captured a small object or something has formed. But usually the debris in which a moon would form from or the object that our gravitational pull would be able to even capture is so small. And so, for example, Mars has two moons, but these are tiny, uh, weirdly formed, like not spherical, like asteroids, essentially, that have been caught by Mars. Venus and Mercury, which are the two other planets very similar to Earth in that they're terrestrial, so they're rocky planets instead of uh, gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, they don't have moons, right? So it's not super common for rocky planets like us to have a moon. And if we do, you would expect it to be very small. Moons like our gas giants, which are massive and have a big gravitational pull, they have like 80 moons plus each. But even then, those moons are so small compared to their size. There is only one other system or object in our solar system that has something similar to us with the same sort of having a very large moon relative to the size of the planet. And that's actually Pluto, which is also now no longer a planet. It's a dwarf planet. And also it's argued that its moon isn't even a moon because it's so large compared to Pluto that actually they're more like a binary planet system, you know, orbiting each other as they go around. So super, super rare for us to have this moon, right? Very cool. But also... <laughs> One thing that just blows my mind, and especially having recently experienced the total solar eclipse, because in my one week of good health, um, I got to go and work on a cruise in Western Australia as an astronomer to go view the total solar eclipse in person. And it was a surreal experience. The thing that I kept thinking about after having witnessed it, which I want to talk about in a second, which was just mind blowing, is that the chances that our moon and our sun are the same size in our sky is also absurdly lucky. Like, I don't even want to calculate what the odds are because I feel like at that point it just feels like we're in a simulation because our moon is 400 times smaller than the sun in its sort of like width across the sky. Well, like, well you know, it's plane of size, but it is 400 times closer. It is literally the perfect moment in time in the entire history of our 4.5 billion year old planet to have our moon be at essentially the same, this perfect ratio between the sun and its size. Our moon, the reason we even have it, this unusual moon, is because it formed in such a weird way. Essentially, back when we were a little baby planet, we we're all hot and molten, you know, nice rock, nothing that life would develop on. A Mars-sized object, so like another planet, smashed into Earth and it ripped up the top layer of our uh, our surface and it threw it into space 
And so that is how we believe the moon to form. And we've been able to verify that by looking at, I think, oxygen isotopes on the moon and realizing that they have come from the Earth's surface. But it's literally because a beautiful Mars-sized planet called Thea decided to smack into us like four billion years ago and created an unusually large moon, which happens to be 400 times smaller than our sun, but also 400 times closer to Earth than the sun. So it is the perfect size. And the thing is, this moon's slowly getting further and further away from Earth. So I don't know the timeline. It's not any time soon, of course. These things happen quite slowly. But we are born out of a 4.5 billion year history of the Earth and a 200,000-year history of humans. We happen to be here on that this little blip in time, on a very large timescale, we happen to be here at the perfect time for the moon to be in the right distance to cover the sun perfectly. So I just have to say, solar eclipses, very cool, very rare, very absurd, and something that you don't, like other planets, if there were life, wouldn't experience. So to talk about the total solar eclipse, I was very lucky to go see it in person. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the things that I experienced because I would like to encourage people to seek it out in the few years' time when we have the solar eclipse happen across a large part of Australia because totality is fantastic. Whenever I've seen pictures or anything to do with eclipses in the past, I've always seen, you know, a black circle, maybe a yellow sort of orangey sun outline around it. And you slowly see how like the black circle takes over and you just end up with like a little yellow orange crescent until it's fully gone. So I wasn't sure what to expect with the naked eye, because when you're at totality, you can't look at the sun, but once you reach totality, you absolutely can look at it without any solar lens. Your naked eye can stare at that beautiful thing. And what's crazy to me is I, like, I, I, you know, I've got a degree in this area, and yet I was still so shocked and blown away by what I'd seen, because it's just not what I had expected. Essentially, when the moon covers the sun, everything's like beautiful, delicate blacks and light blues and whites. So not at all what you'd get when you look through it through a solar lens with a telescope or with a camera. And so you end up having this beautiful black or, you know, some detail in the moon and then seeing these beautiful faint little white wisps coming out from the sun. And you can see these little wisps with your eyes. For me, I think I'd always sort of assume the sun's like a solid ball of light in our sky. And when it's covered by the moon, you probably see a slight glow. But you actually see the solar prominences, these... Um, I guess like these, uh, this charged material and this beautiful, delicate little like sort of like spiderweb looking wisps that are floating off it. It's gorgeous uh, and incredible. So, you know, we had 60 seconds of totality. But what's so crazy about what's happening in 2028 in Australia is we're going to have five full minutes. So five full minutes, you can stare at this beautiful thing that has made cultures around the world for tens of thousands of years absolutely lose their minds. And after having seen it in person, I absolutely understand why people chase these things. So... It's super, super exciting. Um, in five years' time, we're going to have a total solar eclipse which passes directly over Sydney and also Dubbo, the Kimberley, etc. And Melbourne's going to have 80% of totality and so is Brisbane. Uh, but the thing is, it's just like, what, a four, five, six-hour drive to go to a place where it has totality, which is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, and is just a sight beyond words. So I was very grateful to have seen it recently and very excited that if relatively soon on an astronomical timescale, um, you can expect to see it in a town near you. So today we've been speaking with Barkindji artist Raymond Zeta in preparation for an exhibition that's starting next week um, at Bunjil Place Gallery in Narrow Warren, which is called Naritja. So Naritja, which means together, us group, all in it together, 
in Barkindji language, is a fresh and vibrant exhibition that brings together six Barkindji artists, Nikki Cumston and Zena Cumston, who are the co-curators, David Doyle, Kent Morris, Adrian Simmons, and Raymond Zeta, who we spoke to today. And they're exploring and illuminating the artist's homelands and ancestral connections through newly commissioned works. So there are more than 50 works that have been made for this exhibition, um, which are exploring these ideas of belonging um, in the aims that Nadacha would be a contemporary capsule of stories, memories and conversations shown through sculpture, prints, moving image, photography, writing and design. It really sounds beautiful. Speaking to Raymond was so insightful. And um, you can find out a lot of information about Nadacha as well online. Um, so for those who may be very interested in attending, Nadacha, if uh, you wanted to search it up, is N-G-A-R-A-T-Y-A. And it's at Bunjil Place Gallery starting from next weekend, Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 14th, all the way down to 3rd of September this year before it starts to tour nationally. And um, you have uh, Barkindji curator and photographer Nikki Cumston, writer, researcher and storyteller Zena Cumston, as well as carver educator and poet David Doyle, Barkindji photographer Kent Morris, performer and dance maker Adrian Simmons, and then of course, who we spoke to today, Barkindji multimedia artist Raymond Zeta. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it sounds like an event not to be missed. Um, and just such a beautiful theme. And to imagine 50 works being commissioned for it as well, it sounds like an adventure. So if you'd like to find out more, um, you can uh, look up for N-G-A-R-A-T-Y-A, Nadja Together, um, starting 14th of May, 3rd to December, September at Bunjil Place Gallery.